Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ad Slyson. On the podcast today, I have someone who's been a professional road cyclist in the 90s, which then developed into becoming part of what I can only describe as the extreme sports industry if you can overlay a label on what he does now. My guest also is one of a handful of people that started the scooter craze that has now exploded in the UK market. He owns two scooter brands, District Scooters and Dominator, and his company Greenover Sports is the sole distributor for Ryan Williams Nitro Circus Signature Scooters in the UK. Adding to this and his accolades, his company has been the linchpin for developing the new Dekine wetsuits soon to hit the market. Man, I could go on. Plus the fact the guy absolutely rips on a surfboard and is a bit of a legend in my eyes. Please enjoy my conversation with Greenover Sports owner, Dan Maker. Dan Maker, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm all good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Been surfing today? Have you going today? You've been surfing this week? Yes. And yes. Uh, yeah, surfed. Um, we've got a little break locally to us, which on a big southwester will get a wave. Um, and then I was at Limith yesterday and... It was okay. I think you got it better the day before, but it was should have been here yesterday. That yeah, classic. it was. <laughs> I, I, it was a little. I was a little bit dubious about it to be honest with you because I saw the forecast and you know it's like looking at those forecasts and going up there. Sometimes it can be right, and other yeah. times it's it's just not correct at all. And um, got there, got there just before it got light. It was still dark when I got there, and I was like, I was looking at it. I could just see a little bit of the, you know, when <laughs> yeah. you just see the the silhouette the of the bit, white water breakers, like, the, oh. just the dark line. Yeah, yeah, and it was still quite quite high on the tide, but yeah, we managed to paddle out just before it got light, and um, yeah, it was really good. Uh, some of the best waves I've had there for a while, probably a couple of years. Probably. Yeah, actually. I haven't surfed there very much, and um, I I'm still a bit kind of mixed on how good it can be you can get glimpses of it the odd wave every now and come in you'll be like wow that was cool that was properly long and kept going and kept going and and other times you can flounder around and paddle around in circles and come away a bit disappointed but yeah it was good i think you can get on uh like on youtube and watch some of the videos of it and get a little bit lost in translation with it sometimes i'm, I'm a little bit like that with anywhere i go like i know how good it has been and how yeah. good i've surfed it before you want it to be like that especially when you see like you know there's a 15 foot swell yeah. wrapping up on the north coast because it's a north facing north facing break um yeah you always expect it to be super good but it's yeah, one I, th- of those, I think we um i mean i sort of started surfing when i was about 15 no younger than that 14 probably 15 um and i always remember it being way better than it is now i can't think i don't know why i wasn't a particularly good surfer and still not that good either really but um i always remember it being epically good at like bantham and lanarkham where it's never been good ever um you always come out going oh that was so awesome you're like no, it wasn't. Not really. It was junk. Sounds um, like a fisherman's tail, doesn't it? Is, it? Yeah, the probably fish is, is always yeah. bigger when like you caught it. Like a fish Yeah. And uh, it was like, I always remember, was it like, the older I get, the better I was or something like that? Oh, don't go down the old guy rules, Matt. It's, it's just it's a well, shameless route. Well, we're going to that route. early. It's a shameless route. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sad. Um, but no, I'm, yeah, just trying to do as much as I can, can really. Um, get in as many times as I can. Not easy, you know, trying to balance work commitments and 
it's not something you can switch on. It's not like mountain biking where you can go to a trail center and it's, you can go anytime it's trail center is going to be the same. You're trying to balance it between swell windows and stuff. So the diary can sometimes get thrown out the window. <laughs> I'm like, no, out, out, out. I think work have just taken it as a given now where, where's ads? He's not I'll yet. take the swell forecast. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's probably down the beach. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't even tell my guys now where I'm going. I'm like, I'll make up some shit about delivery. I'll be like, yeah, I've got to go to Cornwall and do a board delivery. It's like, right. Yeah, you yeah. say it in that sarcastic manner as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to deliver yeah, something. That's it. I won't be long. Yeah, I'll four see hours you tomorrow. Later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where did that got? Yeah, no, I'll never come back in. But that's good. Mate, just uh, tell everyone a little, little bit about yourself. Um. Yeah, this is always a bit weird, isn't it? Talking about yourself, I've never particularly. Well, start start from the it. beginning, then. So you know um, where where you grew up. You know how you got into sort of the outdoor pursuit model. I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's an easy one. So um, South Coast, basically, grew up on a farm um, that's been in the family for a couple of generations, um, and so as kids, we just lived outdoors. You know, that was the part of the the house was fucking freezing so it was warmer outside on most days and so we just hung out outside we well, I was digging holes and building dens and we're really lucky that the for, the farm is right on the um on the coast so we have like a little beach and everything down there so we grew up fishing and swimming and sailing and all that other junk um and yeah that was it really so for me I've always been outdoors just always been outdoors um had no clue other than I didn't want to get into farming pretty much because that's quite a tough industry, uh, particularly on a small farm. It wasn't a big farm. So, um, but dad was pretty good at getting us out of bed, either by starting a chainsaw outside the window or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a small working farm. He had a different business that actually we lived off. Um, and the farm, I think he was um probably more obliged to take on he's a farmer he's definitely a farmer and took it over from his dad and um that wasn't something that we were going to do i've got two brothers by the way younger none of us were going to do that um and i just kind of wanted to forge my own path really not not that direction and um in the absence of really knowing what i wanted to do i'm quite envious of somebody that wakes up when they're 16 and go i want to be a vet or I want to be a doctor because there's a path laid out for you, um, which you can follow and you, you may become a vet or not, but at least you've kind of got a bit of direction. I didn't have any other than the fact that I do, there were things I didn't want to do. So by kind of not doing that, I did loads of other stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it sort of started there. Um, so I obviously was on the water or in the water, I skateboarded from about 11 that naturally progressed into surfing um I didn't really jump on the windsurfing thing which could have been an angle for me back then a couple of my mates did but I was like it's too much faff um and I sailed dinghies from a pretty young age um till about 15 16 um and then um skateboarding was way cooler surfing was even more cooler and then I got a car at 17 passed my test pretty much straight away because I've been driving since I was 10 on the farm and I was gone I was like I was out of here and that's it. So that kind of like, and then I've sort of done work based around that really, um, you know, kind of 
did my A-levels, didn't complete them because uh, my mum started getting bad grades on the homework that she was doing for me because I couldn't really do it. So we had to leave that. Um, I say we because I was so disappointed that she wasn't good enough at my RE homework. But anyway, apart from that. Um, and then um, went into, you remember the old days, the old YTS schemes? Yes. Back in the day. Um, which uh, I did that as a marine engineer basically locally for a local guy um and um so yeah did that for a couple of years uh got fed up and not earning any money and working 50 hour weeks um and fortunately like i say my dad had a different business to the farm so and that was in that was in decorating with sort of specialist paints and stuff god it's super boring isn't it wow anyway i did that for a bit um and uh till i was about 19 um and kind of worked out that I could either have my dad as a dad or a boss and he was a much better dad than he was a boss. And, um, and so we parted ways and, uh, what did I do then? I started cycling. I think actually I'd been into mountain biking for a bit at this point. I was one of the first guys to get a mountain bike in our area and, um, kind of loved it. Um, oh no, that's right. We'd planned, me and a mate had planned to do a trip to Morocco, that kind of classic coming of age trip. And uh, we'd saved up a bunch of money. I'd quit my job, um, bought a transit van that I converted into a camper. You know, this is all super massive cliches, but it is what we did back then. Mate, it's brilliant though. It is what kind of what we did. And um, right at the last minute, uh, he pulled out and I was like, ah, oh, bollocks, what am I going to do now? Because I didn't really want to go on my own. Wasn't that brave. Um, and just at that time I was living in Brixham and there was a new mountain bike shop that had just opened up called, um, imaginative Brixham mountain bikes. And, uh, so I went in there and basically spunked all the money I'd saved to go to Morocco on a brand new mountain bike. And, um, and then he, Andy, he's called to one of my best mates now. Um, he encouraged me to come out cause they did like evening rides and everything. And, and, um, uh, which I did and could keep up, which was also a bit unusual. And they'd try and put you through the ringer and I would always be able to kind of keep up. And I didn't really know why. I wasn't particularly good at riding. Um, but I think through all of the surfing and skateboarding, all that kind of stuff, you have a relatively strong constitution and you're obviously quite fit because I was surfing a lot um, and I could keep up easy. And, um, and then they were like, oh, you should do a race. And actually, randomly, my first mountain bike race was at Woodbury Common and um, did the sport category and got my ass handed to me, uh, which is like or normally what happens when you first do a race. But I was hooked uh, and that was it. I just wanted to ride bikes. And um, that set me on a path to eventually um, living in France and racing for a living, not pro pro, but if I didn't do well, I didn't get paid type thing. And, um, uh, yeah, that was, that was best and worst times of, of, of my life actually probably doing that. There were, there were some dark times in that. And, um, that took me all the way until about 27, I guess. And, um, I think I just had tired legs by then and I like cake. And I like to eat cake and you couldn't really do that type of stuff. You know, it was pretty religious, no drinking, no smoking, no like religiously taking your heart rate every morning. You know, it was pretty 
disciplined. Um, I don't need to talk to you about discipline, but um, yeah, it was tough. And um, and it was in that kind of uh, early 90s when drugs were, and I'm not going to, this is not a conversation about that, but you, you there would be people taking amphetamines and stuff next to you in a race before they started. And uh, it got it got pretty leery at some points and I wasn't really prepared to do that. And also I probably wasn't good enough to go all the way, if I'm really honest with myself. So um, I didn't really want to make that ultimate, ultimate sacrifice to it. And uh, so I stopped and I literally just stopped and uh, didn't pick a bike up again for about five years. That was it. Um, so, yeah. And then I did pick it up five years later and, and now I ride quite a bit and my business is around bikes. And when I kind of left the sport, I, um, we organized training camps. We did loads, we did loads in the sport. Um, and, uh, to this day still do the odd training camp. Um, when you say we, who's we, um, Macy, I say we, because I'm, I'm embarrassed about talking about myself, but mostly it's me. Um, I mean, obviously you, you know, no man is an Island. Uh, type thing so there were always people around me that helped and or that I would get into help um but but ultimately it's again in this kind of pursuit of not really knowing what I wanted to do I just do loads of stuff loads of cool stuff um until it wasn't cool and then I'd stop you know type of thing drove my wife crazy probably with it um I still don't really know what the plan is do you feel like that trip that you would have took to your mate in Morocco oh, could have been so totally could have been a crossroads yeah so do you reckon if you'd have actually gone do you know what i'm actually going to travel to morocco on my own and 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 see what comes out of that trip it would have been a completely different um a, a completely different turn of events to to what you actually did a hundred percent yeah i think um walking into that mountain bike shop and buying a new mountain bike because ultimate retail therapy basically and meeting Andy um probably was a pretty decisive moment um because I'd met my well my wife Lucy I'd met her already by now we'd been together since we were 16 17 but she'd never prevented me from doing anything that I wanted to do and I didn't know so she didn't guide me she had her own path when we were that age or her own path and um and so I think, yeah, meeting him was, yeah, probably quite influential on that full direction. And it could have gone in a completely different way. I mean, I've been to Morocco since. It's a proper shithole. So I probably wouldn't have made it back. Could have got ugly. Well, it's a shithole now, but like back then, it's I suppose, not been... I don't know back then. I never went. <laughs> but... Well, I spoke to, um, I spoke to Jed Stone. Um, do, you, do you remember Jed Stone? So he was... Um, European British surf champ like okay. back in like the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Surfed all the way up to, competed up to like when he was sixty. Yeah. Um and he was telling a few stories about, you know, he did the same as you, the back in the, the cliche and back yeah. in the day, yeah. back in the seventies, got a camper van, converted it, travelled down with his missus down yeah. to Morocco and uh and and he did a couple of trips on his own and just kind of like stayed there and he said there was probably like three other people in this must have been amazing actually. massive area yeah i mean those are the sort of things that when you read like surface path or yeah. something like that or 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 a book about the 70s that you kind of go 
Man, that must have, that must have been cool. Even in the nineties, even yeah, know. early well nineties, I was I was just fully committed to cycling, so I didn't do anything. I stopped surfing at that point. Um, in fact, I didn't surf for about fifteen years, um, and because I was the whole time that I was cycling, there was no room for anything else, basically. Yeah. Um, and Luce, she wasn't keen. She would never have wanted to go down. She might go now, but back then she was training to be a chef and stuff. So she didn't, I couldn't have gone with her. Um, and, but I knew early on, I knew then that I wasn't prepared to sacrifice that relationship for it. I didn't love it that much. Mm. Um, and even through the whole cycling where I was living abroad, we would be commuting backwards and forwards and we would, she's pretty much been the, I'm not going to say ball and chain, but the anchor is probably a polite way of saying something that I've always come back to. Um, and she's given me the freedom to do that. Um, so, yeah, I've got probably a lot to thank for that. Um, I think if you look at a lot of people that were or are professional sportsmen, those people that don't have those anchors that are kind of like what you say, didn't really know what they're doing. They're just kind of like going along and, and winging it. If they don't have that grounding that's when people start coming unstuck a little bit i think yeah it can do for sure and i think not the reason it was a it was a it was an accumulation of reasons why i stopped injury tiredness exhaustion politics um but one of the ones was you know i was looking at guys in their 50s and 60s who had done this journey and i was like they were divorcees or they were drug addicts or they were dead you know i'm like yeah, I'm not sure I want that. Like, it's not worth that. Um, and um, and so I didn't, you know, there was all of those reasons were reasons why I went off and did something differently. And actually, I stopped enjoying it. Like, you need to do it a lot. You know, we were riding between 350 and 500 miles a week, you know, 12,000 miles a year, 100 plus races a year. You have to enjoy that because that's, that's, that's pretty tough um and what discipline did you do was it did you do multiple disciplines or were you specifically downhill or no i started mountain biking um and um back then mountain biking was flourishing so it wasn't it wasn't a, an established scene like it is now and it's never really become like road cycling it was almost impossible to make any money at it particularly make a living and i switched um onto the road for training to be better at mountain biking and kind of won most won the Southwest series, won the Cornwall series, um, racing the nationals, racing the Grundig World Cup when it was at Plymouth, you know, did all those type of things, mountain biking. Um, but there wasn't really any path here to go. That's why there's no, well, there have been a few top mountain bikers, but uh, from the UK, but it's pretty tough. You have to move away to do it really. Um, whereas on the road, there are so many races and there's so many levels that it was, it was easier to make a living um, and um, crikey. Yeah. What would, I can't remember the year it was, um, but we did a, um, I was, I was racing for mid Devon cycling at the time and Totnes was veered with a town in France called Via in Normandy. And there was this um, um, uh, like twinning race that they would do. They would come over here and we would go over there type of thing. And, and one September we went over there um, and we went over with a guy called Jeremy Hunt who turned pro for Bonesto and has been a pro for years and raced on the tour and everything. Super good rider. He was local guy, lived in Totnes. And we used to train with him all the time. 
Um, he was another level to where we were. And we went over, and this was my first ever real road race. And uh, it was a two-day stage race. So it was three stages over two days. And the first stage was 80 miles. I'd never even ridden 80 miles in my entire life, you know. And so you get thrown straight into the deep end, <laughs> shaved my legs, I was looking pretty cool um, and sort of did okay and, and was mentored by a guy called Colin Lewis um, and uh, who's obviously pretty done the tour in the Paris Bain, pretty famous cyclist locally. And his words were, just stay in the front and do no work. And I'm like, I have no fucking idea what that means, <laughs> you know, type thing. Um, and there were 120 guys and we all on the start line and off we go and it's it's a different level to racing here. And um, I uh, I didn't quite make it all the way in the group on the first stage. We got dropped with about sort of five miles to go in the finishing circuit. Me and my, the only good thing is that I was with three other people and the two behind me, they got, they'd already been dropped. So I'd done better than them. But Jez, Jez went on to win the bloody stage. So we had the yellow jersey and... Um, so then our job was to defend the yellow jersey. And this is all so new and so exciting. It was amazing. And then we went into the second day and um, it was a like a shorter road circuit, four big laps, about 45 miles or something, not very far. Um, and we were sat on the front, you know, like they see in the tour. We were, we were doing that job. We were pacing, we were bringing about the brakes and all this kind of stuff. It was awesome, you know. Didn't know what the hell I was doing, but felt pretty good. Um, and then... Um, then the final stage, um, it was a finishing circuit. It was like a criterium. So it's a really short circuit and 60 or 70 laps up a big hill every single time. I, I got, I think I got blown out like a quarter of the way in. Um, and then Jez won it again, bastard. Um, so we, we ended up winning the overall with him. Um, but he, he did it on his own. He was so much better than everybody. It was amazing. And um, anyway, since that, I was like... I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. And I uh, wrote a letter to the president of the club, um, Velo Club de Bocage in Villa. And I said, is it all right if I come back next year and race for your team uh, in Normandy? And that was what I did. And he said, yeah, and I did. And I rocked up in a Fiat Panda with everything I owned and my bike. Couldn't really speak a word of French. So everything I'd learned was out of a phrase book. So I could only talk his phrases, really. And... Um, Turned up at 11 o'clock at night after catching the ferry, uh, walked into a bar, which we like prearranged. And I did all of my communication through an 11 year old boy called Pierre Alain and um, went up to the bar, ordered a hot chocolate and uh, waited there for like 15 minutes thinking, what the, what the fuck have I done? What is going on here? You know, type thing. And uh, yeah, loved it. I mean, loved all that. It was good. Then got in my first race. I trained like a bastard all winter. Um, got into my first race. It was April and um, came second. And um, should have won, possibly could have won. Didn't. Messed up the sprint a little bit. Um, or oh, I was in a break and uh, one guy clipped off and I was with two other people and those three didn't chase and I didn't want to lead it out because, you know, the, the guy that won it played good tactics. And uh, so I beat the other two guys in the sprint. And um, and ever since then, I was in the paper and being recognised. And I mean, we're talking, you know, not even a very big fish in a really tiny, not even a pond, more like a puddle. 
and um, but it was pretty felt pretty good. Yeah, felt pretty good. Of course it would. You're getting all that recognition, and you're doing well, and you're doing something that you enjoy. I mean, that's surely what we all kind of want Almost to do. Continually buzzing. Yeah. Um, and uh, were you getting sponsored? And yeah, we uh, were. Yeah, how it works. Um, so we were. I'd like. Um, you get over there. You get paid at the end of the year. Um, and the, the prize money is really big there. I mean, big relative. This is when it was Frank's. This is pre-Euro days. And um, This is oh, still mountain biking, is it? it was no, no, this cycling, is road. road. This road is all road cycling now, yeah. Now, yeah. I thought so. I was like, that. Oh, yeah, there was no mountain biking really <laughs> like that. Um, uh, but you could race every day. That's how many races there were. Uh, as opposed to mountain biking, you'd be hardly ever racing. Um, and I was like, I wanted to race. Like, that was what, that was what made me go well. <clears throat> and um <clears throat> so you uh we would get paid based on our position that we finished so if we finished well um we would get paid pretty much straight away but you didn't get paid until the end of the year so you had to go over there with some savings in order to get you through the year to get you through the season and then there'd be a big kind of like dinner at the end and then you would pick up your prize check and so you were check and balancing you know like shall i buy meat for dinner or shall i just buy vegetables um because you had to balance that amount of money because you were you were on a shoestring the whole time and then at the end of the year you get paid you know not thousands of pounds let's not get too excited but you'd get a few thousand quid and it would kind of if you'd done all right it would cover the season uh give you a little bit towards next season um and then you'd come home do shit jobs gutting fish and you know, the little silicone packets that you put in shoe boxes, do that for 12 hour shifts just to earn enough money. Do that overnight so then you could train in the day. Um, and um, yeah, they were, they were easy times, really easy because you had a calendar and you knew what you were doing every day. You had a training program. And so you would wake up and you knew that that day you'd be doing 50 mile or 80 mile or you'd be doing intervals or you'd be racing. You know, it was... It was clear until it isn't. And then you're like, wow, lost for ages. Um, and and I think that's when you see sports guys, uh, you know, and I wasn't a pro pro, you know, I earned a living, but that was about as, as glamorous as I can make it. And there were some cool things that we did on that. You know, you got good invites and you did interviews on the radio in French. So I probably said your mum looks like a helicopter or something. <laughs> I don't know. And um, uh, and all that was cool. We did a big race called the um, Tour de Normandy, which is a 10-day stage race, probably the biggest race I did in my career. Um, and one of the defining memories is is in a long line of like 100 and some odd riders lined out doing 40 mile an hour, absolutely on the rivet and a low-hanging TV helicopter filming you and um so that you know that was kind of like cool i i get why people do it i mean it's a massive buzz um and uh and then you get dropped <laughs> it's like race over you're in a massive crash or it can be as i say best and worst pretty much um so yeah i think it's um they were they were good times for sure um and learn a lot about myself um, but you definitely, when you realize that you're not going to get there, that's, there's more help now for it back then. 
you're on your own. You just got to man up, get on with it. That was like with any sport back then, though, wasn't yeah, it? Really, totally. unless you were like the the pinnacle of the the game or the sport that you were in, and you were far better than everybody else. Then, and there weren't many of them. Yeah, uh, and then you know you pretty much, like you say, just kind of funding yourself with whatever you're doing. Yeah, and then if you're one of these people that isn't both feet in, you've got one foot in, one foot out, and you're undecided. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, you 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 need a lot of support, and there's so much more support now for people. And and this is not kind of like oh, back in our day, um, but mm. back in our day, it was different. It was just different. It wasn't as commercial. Um, it wasn't as recognised. You know, we didn't have Bradley Wiggins or Chris Baldwin was probably the first one. Um, well, after guys like Tommy Simpson and Colin and those guys back in the sixties, and then there was nothing really um you, there was there was no there was there was nothing you just had to do it on your own and our kind of training regime there was a selection for sure and you'd go out with mid-devon training run on a 120 mile club run on a sunday morning and we'd have young guys like first time out they would get left 40 50 mile from home just to fend for yourself you know you're like if you're 16 i mean i was right i mean i would go back with them and go like you know have you got any money? Can you phone your dad? If from a phone box, no mobile phones or anything back then. Mm. Have you got enough food? Because they'd eaten all the fluff in their pocket at this stage. You know, they were screwed in the middle of Dartmoor in driving rain. I mean, it was pretty brutal. Um, but if you got through that, then you were kind of going to be okay. If you weren't going to get through that, you don't deserve to be there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that's more... That's a harsh thing to say, but no, it's, that's that's it. That's the reality of it, though, isn't it? A bit. And um, But now, these days, we've got a lot more designated programs. I think yeah. sports science and the way that we look at a sports person anatomically, nutritionally, and, and the way that we actually build up a training program to bring people on is a lot better. Now, don't get me wrong. My personal opinion is that in this country... We don't, we don't pump as much money into it. Now, I, I just think economically, as a country, we don't have that. We've got so many different things we need to look at as as well as sport. Whereas, like you know, Americans have got these massive corporate organisations that actually fund all of these programs. Whether it's American cycling, American football, football, you know, whatever, surfing, even yeah, you know, they they've got a national team that. They have funded coaches that teach the kids that are eight years old all the way yeah. up to, you know, when they're pros. And they like groom them. Aussies, exactly the yeah. same. They groom them through rugby league, surfing, all of their sort of like their core sports. It, it's to, you're so right. Um, and I know, you know, when we were, you know, we had British cycling, which was not great back then. Um, and we had no science. I mean, Chris Bourne was probably the first trailblazer that came on and was, you know, using a heart rate monitor and was talking about levels. And even back then, we didn't really know what's your maximum heart rate, 220, less 20, you know, no, 220, less your age. I mean, that's not scientific at all. If, if you asked me that back in the 90s when I was playing rugby, I'd be like, I have no idea what, are you what talking you're talking about. about heart rate? What, what crap <laughs> I think I've got a heart. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. And where is it? <laughs> I don't is know. It it's, on the, oh, it's somewhere. The, the cartoon right. says it's on the left-hand side I somewhere. It's, it's, under, it's in your armpit. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it is, and now it's, and the level is 
certainly better, broader and better. Um, but it's a bit chicken and egg, isn't it? I mean, what comes first? Do do the athletes come first or the desire and the ability and the winning medals comes first or does the money come first in order to develop the athletes? And I think if you, if you look at um, the very successful sports in the UK recently, I mean, cycling is one of those, particularly at an Oly- Olympic level, that's a lot to do with funding. Um, but also good people, good coaches, you know, um, and they've come from being successful athletes. So, so some of them um, and more science. Um, yeah, I mean, more of everything. It's definitely way, 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 way more sophisticated than I mean, we would just. It would be ridiculous, you know, what we would do in order to think that we were going better. We had no clue. And then half the time is we were just completely fatigued, almost exclusively you were tired. Um, and um, I got gastroenteritis back in April in one in my last year over there. And I didn't know what I was doing. And, and you just puked, shat, ate, raced. You know, that was like it. Um, and that led to um, stomach complications later on that year, which, you know, you just run out of energy completely. And I was suffering with chronic fatigue for sure. Um, diagnosed with it, in fact. And um, and that was when I kind of looked at myself and got a coach, looked at a nutritional program, looked at a proper training program um, and was for sure the best I'd ever been in my life um, in the last year that I did it. And um, unfortunately for me then, the enjoyment kind of lost it for me a bit but for sure I was at the fittest that I'd ever been um and that was because of those things because of some actually somebody who knew what they were doing telling you what you should be doing it's amazing how much just having a little bit of knowledge about your energy inputs outputs what you're eating you know your glucose levels can affect your performance, even your water intake, yeah, even something that basic back then, because, you know, I can remember, you know, I, I, I played a decent level of rugby. Yeah. My nutrition levels were, were, were shocking. You wouldn't even know what the word meant. Yeah. Like, you know, f- for me, I didn't really train weights that much. I just, mm. I just played the sport. I enjoyed what I was doing, but I did lots of different things that, really if you if you if if I looked at it now helped me out but I enjoyed those as well so I did like athletics um you know lots of complimentary yeah I did I did sailing um you know I I was windsurfing I was surfing my life without kind of like contradicting what you're saying pretty much up to the point where you're 20 where you went your direction I joined the military yeah sounds like it we did we did the same things (laughs) yeah um but but my point being is that if if I'd have known more about nutrition apart from like thinking a T bone steak with some chips and you know chicken and rice on the side and that's yeah it's pretty much like all, all I ate yeah. maybe if I ate a little bit better maybe my performance levels would have been better and but at the end of the day if you enjoy what you're doing then you know and you didn't know about it then then you can't really you can't really argue with that. No, and I was given some advice really early on when we started looking at kind of, you know, what we were eating and 
heart rate levels and all this kind of stuff. And, and in fact, it was Colin that gave it to me. And he said, look, if you go, if you, he said, when you turn pro, you have to learn to eat chips. And the meaning in that really was basically like, you can do all this nutritional stuff now. You can do, you can do all the energy drinks. You can do all the proper stuff. But when you turn pro, you'll just eat anything because you're so freaking exhausted. Um, and sure enough, when I got there, you have to eat a lot of, you just eat anything because you can't be as disciplined, you know, because you might be in a team that doesn't sign up to that stuff or you get alienated for coming in. And, and you know, there are athletes like, Robert Miller and, and you know they would be a vegetarian and and that would be completely against your director sportives type um uh way that you would be doing it because you're clashing into the old school essentially um and yeah I mean I I for sure thought think that you would be better but everyone would be better kind of does level the playing field a little bit um and it still comes down to basically desire um, and then some guys cheat and some guys don't, some guys look at what they're eating. Some guys don't, some guys look at the training methods. Some guys don't, you know, the guys with the natural ability or the guy with the biggest desire is probably still going to win. Well, the biggest pack of drugs that they're pumping into them Possibly, you know, they were talking about at the beginning. There probably was a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, but all that we used to, we used to joke about this with guys that were, when we were out training and it'd be like the guys who were. The guys who are good, naturally talented, before drugs, they would win. And then the guys who are a bit shit would take drugs in order to beat the guys who are naturally good. And then the guys who are naturally good take drugs. You still get the same natural of order. You know, it's still the guys with the most talent are going to win pretty much on the day. Um, I mean, that's a very broad generalization. It's, it's, it's very clever. Now. No, you've tarnished everybody with that now. I have pretty much <laughs> because back then basically everyone was doing it. No, that's a another broad generalization. Um, but, it, and, and to be honest, it doesn't matter if you are or not, you can't, like, I don't train ever now. I can't do a course of EPO and win the tour, right? You still have to sacrifice so much. You have to train so hard. You have to be so disciplined. You have to, with your weight and what you eat and everything that it, it almost kind of like, it's irrelevant what they do in order to get that two or three percent extra marginal gains very marginal but the work that they've even got to do to get there is phenomenal and that will crack the majority of people so you know were those big famous guys cheating did they get an unfair advantage probably not they were just the best riders still so you got to what 26 and you decided that you'd had enough yeah 26 27 uh got married um i think it was about then that's a test. Um, probably failed. Um, then got offered a job for uh, by a friend of mine that was being promoted. And he said, look, he was a sales manager for the Southwest region for Buddy Fox. And, and he said to me, he said, I'm gonna, I've got a promotion. I need to find somebody to fill my job. Um, do you want it? And I was like, well, wait a minute, get paid. Because I hadn't really been paid a regular wage for years up until this point get a car, get a mobile phone. Well, mobile is in, it's still attached to the car, but that was pretty swanky. And get paid to visit bike shops. I'm in, I'm, in, I'm all in. And um, so I worked there for a couple of years um, and that was good. Learned a hell of a lot. Um, and probably my, the start of my sort of business grounding, I guess, uh, business kind of education started there. Um, 
again, and I used to just put what I'd learned from racing into work. You know, if you if you want to go and get the order, you need to go and do the time. You need to get in the car. You need to get up early. You need to be disciplined. You need to be reliable. You need to deliver on what you said. You know, all those things, which is everything that we just dragged over from being in sport. There's lots of very close synergies between sport and business, I think. And uh, have a plan, have a calendar, call plans, you know, regularly do them. I uh, wasn't taking my heart rate and I was eating cake at this point. Um, so that was cool. But but the fundamentals are the same. Um, and yeah, that's kind of led to uh, all different things and meeting different people. And, and actually, again, like in a race, if there's a break that goes up the road or somebody attacks, you have to look at it and go, I think that's an opportunity. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for that. Um, that's the one, you know, that's the break. Because loads of times you would sit there and go, oh, I've just had a just had a massive effort over a hill. I'm not going to go now. It's not going to stay away. And it bloody stays away. And and just like with business, opportunities will come and there'll be like an attack going down the road and you'll be like, shit, I should be in that. Um, and so I was kind of okay at recognizing them and um, did a couple of different things for a few different people and what the biggest one probably for me was we had got to the point of working for Muddy, um, left Muddy, set up my own business doing a bike distribution, um, importing bikes from Holland, really tough, but this was my own business now. And um, This is uh, Greenover, isn't it? No, this was pre-Greenover. Oh, okay. Yeah, this was, um, yeah, way back. Greenover was not until the kind of 2000s, really. Uh, late 2000s um and um but during that opportunity um came across these little remember the old micro scooters the yep. folding scooters back then and um we had a couple of guys on the road and uh, we were visiting bike shops every day and i came across this opportunity um or got introduced to these guys and they were just starting and i looked at it and i was like wow this thing is cool because i still had that kind of like you know cool shit excites me you know and they were cool back then, before there were toys, they were super cool. And I remember with my old Ford Mondeo, I was like, I'll take everything that you can fit in the car. Um, and I loaded the car up, drove home to, because I was working with my brother at the time. And uh, I walked into the office with these things and he's like, oh, fuck, what have you done now? Because I was known for this. And I was like, these are going to be amazing. These are going to be the next big thing for sure. These are, these are cool look at them. They're amazing. You know, they're only 120 quid type of thing. And, um, and I remember kind of like making a few phone calls to some good dealers that I had with our mates of mine. And I was like, I've got these scooters. They're going to be amazing. They're going to, you've got to get on board. They were like, what are you mental? Uh, and I was like, no, no, honestly, look, these guys have got a huge PR campaign behind it. They're going to be everywhere. And they were the same guys that were like, I need 200 by the weekend. And here's my credit card number. You know, it was phenomenal. And, um, yeah, did really well in, in a year, went from kind of zero to hero. Um, and then you get lots of copies coming in from China, lots of kind of like, it's an arms race basically to get the cheapest quality, not quality, the cheapest price, worst quality product that you can get on the market. And it's flooded by all the big guys. Um, and, uh, it, it boomed and busted. There were a couple of relatively significant injuries because they were everywhere. 
Um, and in the early 2000s, uh, which is when we were, we were doing electric scooters back then, this is how long they've been around. It's not a new thing, electric scooters. Um, we were, I was kind of like, I don't like the way this is going. Let's, let's just push everything out. And, um, in 2001, we, we, we stepped out of the market and it just exploded like badly in, in on itself. Um, and, uh went all over the shop went really really low quality really cheap toys basically you could see them on the market for a tenner it was it was a disaster really but another lesson on how quick manufacturing can accelerate in the far east particularly when they want to um, and trying to keep anything and trying to protect anything is it's impossible really it's like social media trends now though isn't it yeah you know, whatever someone pushes out who's like high profile you know, they're, they're pushing something out and all of a sudden, you know, five hours later, everywhere sold out of whatever product it is that they're pushing. Totally. And in those days, it was the same, but it would be over a few days, not hours. Now it is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and now we kind of plan because the speed at which you can communicate to a much wider audience now is so much quicker, instant almost. You don't have the whole kind of like, you know, three months in advance. We're planning what magazine article we're going to write or do or content we're going to generate and um, images we're going to take photos of and then it goes into the magazine but it's still a month before it even hits the distribution you know and so you now we're so much more reactive um, and everything is instant and not only is it instant to get there it's instantly gone you know once it's dropped off your feed no one's interested anymore it's continual now whereas in the old days you'd actually have a plan and you'd have a launch date and you would be able to stick to it now everything is leaked and you know, somebody that you've spoken to has put it on social media and you're like, thanks for that. We have to sign NDAs now with like Rocky and stuff. And so we, you know, like if I were to talk to you about some of the new technology, because the production time to get them made is still long, but everyone hears about it instantly. You've got to kind of keep that as quiet as you can for as long as you can. So it's, it's different. Um, it's definitely different now for sure. So you uh, you got out of the market when it exploded. So what did you move into then? If this if scooters kind of um, like fell down, yeah, I we actually shut the business um, because the brand that we were doing they went through a like a remanagement in Holland, and the UK market wasn't a very significant for them then at that point, and um, they kind of changed the terms. It's all a bit kind of boring and complicated uh, but anyway the gist of it is, is that we got out of that business completely and then I actually went and worked for a few people um, and um, initially worked for the guys that we were buying the scooters off so I was close to seeing it collapse um, and we worked um, I worked for the guys at Buff do you remember the head scarf yes the neck scarf still thing? going so, now aren't they yeah yeah really good really good product um so we did a bit of time for them, which was really, really, really good fun. We had some, I mean, those guys were mental um, and that was great. So yeah, had a good time doing that. Um, did some PR work for somebody uh, up country. Um, and that kind of, from that guy, that led into an opportunity to go to America. Um, we were selling a couple of products over there. And this was in the, do you remember those little pit bikes? Yes. Uh, so we. My friend's got one. Yeah. So that was a Honda, 
basically started that. Um, and then there are a bunch of kind of like pit bike copies or 10 inch wheel motocross bikes. Um, and we got involved with a brand called Thumpster back then and um, sold that to a distribution company in America, which that was right early doors begin again, another opportunity going down the road. So I've jumped on um, uh, and then you get in it and then you start driving it. So that's what happens when you, the brake goes down the road. So you don't just sit on the back um, like a sprinter. You would you would then do some work in order to make it better or to get further down the road, you know, type thing to use the same analogy. Um, and for me, it was good because I didn't have regular hours then. Um, and I'd always been keen on snowboarding. This is a bit of a tangent. And um, I wanted to be better at snowboarding. And a friend of mine was a Bayesi ski instructor. And, and I said to him, yeah, I want to kind of get better at snowboarding. He's like, well, you can get lessons or you can get lessons to be a teacher. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I might do that because I'd done a bit of coaching at this stage. And I was like, yeah, I reckon I'll do that. How the hell do you do that? And he's like, well, you, you know, contact Basie and you enroll on one of their courses, pay a ton of money. Um, and uh, so I did that and um, went to Andorra and did um, over over two years. It was two courses over two years, uh, along with a load of hours that you need to log up teaching. And um they yeah i went there thinking i was pretty good at snowboarding and they just they tore you to shreds i mean they were they were good i was not uh even though i could get down a mountain it wasn't free but i could get down anyway they they tear you to shreds and teach you how to snowboard properly um and it's actually a very technical discipline um and so i learned how to do that properly and i was better at teaching it than doing it actually i was a good snowboarder you have to be a good snowboarder in order otherwise they won't give you the lessons or they won't give you the um uh, the badge essentially um so i passed all of those courses which was cool and i think probably still one of the hardest things i've ever done uh, it's properly intensive um and it's real teaching like proper lesson planning and all that kind of stuff. So learn all of that. Um, and, um, but on the same time that I was doing that, I was helping or selling product basically for a commission to these guys in the States. And, uh, I was having a role of the time really, cause I was doing what I love doing. I was teaching at Plymouth, um, ski, you know, the dry ski slope down there. Um, doing a bit of that to keep my hours up, um, and was loving it. And when you're a member of Basie, you get a magazine. There's like four, four a year. Um, and I remember in November, start of the season, uh, not, not in November, in April, the end of the season, I got the magazine. And in the back of the magazine were jobs being advertised for the following season. And so completely on a whim, there was a job advertised for Mount Snow in Vermont in America. And I'd kind of always dreamed about doing a, ski season um but thought that i was possible i was in my early 30s got two young kids but anyway shits and giggles phoned the guy up interested in the job um as a as a snowboard instructor because i'd just been got my license like that year that spring and uh he said yeah come and have an interview so i went to london didn't tell loose at all about this completely stealthy yeah i'm just going to london for a meeting um, <laughs> and uh, went up, um, got interviewed by like a super young bloke in his early 20s. And I was like, I'm 
sort of a bit older than you. This is a bit weird. And uh, uh, anyway, aced the interview and he said, yeah, yeah okay. Um, right, well, we're going to, we'll give you the job. And I was like, this is too easy. Like, you must be giving it to everybody. And he's like, no, no, you are exactly what we want because we get loads of 18-year-old lifties that come in and Aussies that come in 18, 19. They just want to go snowboarding. They want someone else to pay it. He said, we reckon, oh, I reckon that you'll actually show up for work because you're more experienced, a little bit more mature. You've, you know, you've done really well in your kind of assessments and everything. And I was like, oh, feeling pretty good about myself. So I was driving home thinking I fucking ace this this is amazing I'm going I'm going snowboarding and then I was thinking this little kind of niggling thing in the back of my head was like you should probably tell your wife (laughs) and uh, so I was driving home planning like the four-hour journey home how I could kind of break it to her because I couldn't just come out with it I needed to try and make it look like it was her idea and she does know this so it's not talking out of school so much Um, and it was a few weeks but it kind of like came up in conversation um, about maybe doing a ski season. Um, and uh, and she was like, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, yeah. Well, I don't really know. I, just, I don't think, I don't want to go to the Alps. Really. I don't really like the French and I don't want to learn a language and the kids are young and blah, blah. And I was like, what about, you know, just on the off chance, what about somewhere like, you know, maybe like America or something? She was like, oh, yeah, America sounds like it could be pretty cool. And I was like, great, I've got a job. I'll be leaving November. <laughs> she was like, what? And I'm like, yeah, seriously, I've been offered a job and I've accepted. And we and we leave in November. And she was like, you fucking idiot. Um, and uh, and we did. We like rented the house and rented a house over there. And I did it, you know, and um, it was cool. It was really cool. Uh, and I taught kids to snowboard. Um, it was it was amazing. Um, shit money, like super crappy money. Um, but really rewarding because they, their PE lessons, like, so the school kids would, they would come on the slope and instead of going and doing football, they would come skiing. So you'd pick up these kids at the beginning of the season, you'd have them all season and you'd have like every, every, almost every afternoon, you'd get a different class and they would be your class for the year. And they would go from not being able to put bindings on to, right, follow me through the park. You know, we would hit the half pipe and we'd go snowboarding through trees and they were just, they were just awesome. Um, and, uh, and loose, bless her. We had a one and a half and a three-year-old, a one and a half and a three and a half-year-old in the snow, pre-challenging. Um, and I would be snowboarding all day, like living the dream. And at the end of the day, I would get the last lift up because you obviously get to know all the lifties. And then I would snowboard home back to my house through these trees and down all these snowmobile tracks and through people's gardens. And it was just freaking awesome. And I would get to the house and I'd already hear the kids crying and I'd be like, right, I need to, um, I need to tell, I need to say that I've had a shit day. I can't go on about how good it was. And, uh, so I would get through the door, go through, take my, hang my snowboard up, take my boots off and Lucy would be like, you'd be all right. Kids would be crying. I'd be like, yeah, you know, just a kind of sort of a right day. Didn't really get much work. You know, it was sort of, it was sort of okay. Thinking this is the most amazing thing ever. And she'd be like, I'd go, how was your day? And she went, oh, I went to Wilmington to the library. Yeah, the car broke down and we get in a blizzard and we did this and we did that. And I've been to the laundrette and, you know, I'm like thinking, oh my God, I'm so sorry. But in all of this, I was still flogging motorbikes to this company in the States and, and they were based in Miami. 
and uh, there was a big trade show in February and they offered me a job to go and help them increase the distribution and in, across the States for these motorbikes. Um, and I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds cool. We don't need to go back to the UK. Our house is rented, so we'll just extend it. So we moved from Vermont to Miami um, and I got like a real job, 14 hour day, two hour commute in an office, pasty. Um, and she spent the whole day on the beach, like total role reversal, basically. And I would come home and it would be dark and I'd be knackered and uh, she'd still be in like a bikini and her hair would all be like blonde, kissed by the sun and salty and the boys would be in their nappies running around. They were brown and and I'd come in through the door knackered and I'd look at them and I'd be like, good day. And she'd be like, oh, we just met these wonderful people on the beach. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to go, oh, this is so amazing. It's like wonderful. And I'm like, bitch, <laughs> you know, but it, it's only really payback for what, you know, I had up in Vermont. Um, but anyway, it was, it was all good. And, uh, yeah, so that was kind of like, poor oh, blimey, where would that be? Early 2006, 2007. So what are we like 15 years ago? Yeah. 13 years ago or so. Yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, um, we, we stayed there for two years in total. Um, most of the time down in Miami, um, and I traveled the entire States. We had 25 agents working for us. Um, had a really successful time there. I mean, it was only working for the guys, but they did, we did really well. Um, and again, that kind of one of those markets that sort of came off the boil, lots of competition, less expensive, unbranded stuff coming in. Um, and you know, we were kind of coming home anyway. Um, some kind of boring complications at work, um, sort of deals changing and not really being as good as it was. And I was like, mm, I think I'm out of this. Um, and uh, we did a big road trip from Miami to Seattle because I had a really good friend that lived up in Seattle. So um, I basically drove and camped and took us four weeks to drive across and to us show the boys and loose the, the bits of the America because they'd really only been stuck in Miami. So that was really cool. Big country. Big, big, big and super diverse. It's amazing, really. Well, each state is its own country, isn't oh, it, pretty much? And to so totally different. You like state lines are like borders, really. And east to west, I mean, completely different. Um and uh, you know, obviously they've had some issues recently, but um yeah, it's still a pretty phenomenal place, actually. Um yeah, I would, it's, it's definitely good. Uh, but they are foreign. They may speak the same language or similar-ish language, but they're certainly foreign to us. And I think we forget that. You know, you go there and you're like, well, it's just like, just like home. It's like, no, it's not there. It's a foreign country, for sure. Um, and uh, But it's good. Yeah, really good time. And then uh, Lucy's dad got ill, actually, um, with, fortunately, with cancer. And um, uh, so we kind of, we came, we came home we came home then and uh, what happened then? We came home. I did some more training camps. Cycle, so I was still cycling a bit. Uh, I won't bore you with that story. But uh, there was a job being offered um, for a mountain bike distribution company called Silverfish, which is based down in or Plymouth then, but it's in Saltash now. 
um, applied for that job. They, they were looking for a general manager. And I was like, I can do this. It's pretty easy. And I wanted a job, you know, I wanted like a regular kind of like just nine to five type thing. And um, that was awesome. That was also really cool. Um, worked there for a couple of years and then set up my own thing. Um, learned a lot from them um, and got back into the UK bike world, I guess, um, industry. Um, and, uh, and then randomly full circle got approached again by somebody building scooters and, um, it had developed from being kind of a form of mobile or micro or micro mobility, they call it for the posh word, um, to becoming a sport. And so the kids had basically taken the product. They were starting to learn tricks. They were riding them in skate parks um, and they were getting really good. And what was happening is that the product wasn't really made for that. It was made for, it was made as a toy. So you can ride it to school, run off the pavement. It's fine. But the minute you start riding it in a skate park, they would just be breaking left, right and center. Um, and so we, um, or I got approached and then I um yeah basically started distributing a couple of brands in the uk of this new kind of form of product um and what was quite good at it that stage again another kind of like break going down the road jump on the opportunity um we got or i got really involved in the development of it as well and so it kind of drug up all this uh, or dragged up all of this um kind of engineering stuff that i hadn't done for years you know um, but I'd known about manufacturing because we'd been manufacturing bikes, we've been manufacturing motorcycles, and now we're manufacturing scooters, which is relatively simple because only five moving bits. Um, but the the kind of technicality of building something to withstand quite a lot of force, regardless of what it is, is I find quite interesting, a bit geeky. Um, and so we were building kind of extrusion tools to, you know, handle the forces that these guys were using. Um, and the product was getting bigger and stronger and we were essentially trying to keep up with the sport actually, because the sport was developing much faster than the product. Um, and, um, and then, you know, on the back of trying to sell more scooters or promote more scooters, we were like, we need to do more events. Um, and so, uh, me and a couple of other guys, um, we, we organized some tours, um, we organized some like competitions um and uh it was great it just grew from there um more along like the skateboarding sort of thing so like what um bowls and yeah skate well any type of skate park really so bowls half pipe um uh like rhythm sections you know any any skate park that you can go to any racing no not racing although there there are there are guys that do a little bit of kind of like, like a dual slalom type setup. Yeah. Kind of like the BMX and yeah, where you've got the pump tracks. That's it, and, with the pump tracks. But yeah. there's, that's not as, that's not something that's really taken off. We did okay. a little bit of mountain boarding that we would build like a dirt scooter and we would ride that off road. And there was an element, we did a few events where guys could, could basically do that dual slalom on, on mountain board tracks, basically. Um, and that kind of like, didn't really take off, um, but was super good fun. You know, it was awesome to watch. Um, but no, it's predominantly skate parks. Um, and um, and I think scooting or scootering, it's a bit of enough word really for it because it's a 
bloody awesome. The guys are properly good. Um, and it saved tons of skate parks. Like they would have gone out of business if they had to rely on BMX and skateboarding. The participation level is huge in comparison to that. Um, and it, it definitely gave the those guys the abilities to open up new parks, which then feeds more people doing it. Um, and the parks that existed, you know, they were like, yeah, we're definitely more scooter riders. And there was a big resistance against them in the beginning. It's super tribal, all those types of sports. And they were like, oh, it's just kids. And they keep dropping in on me. And they're like, uh, you it's know. It's like SUP and surfing, isn't it? Absolutely <laughs> the same. And now bloody hydrofoiling, you know, it's kind yeah. of like you can catch it from Bigbury and ride it over. Um, and it's the same thing. And I used to say, look, they just need teaching. You know, you were that when you first started skateboarding. The only difference is you don't, you fell off more. They don't fall off because it's yeah. a bit easier to do. Um, and so it's grown enormously um and you can't leave your house on any given day without seeing a kid riding a scooter now really how many times do you see someone riding a skateboard like ever you know so it's what definitely 40 year old ads riding around here on a surf other, skate yeah yeah other than that yeah oh yeah that's one of mine yeah um so there is um there is a little bit of that going on um and we were i say not me alone but me with a lot of help we've we've driven that sport um and there's a world championships now um we have a big kind of called scoot fest which we've done for about seven years running now and we went virtual this year because of the covid thing um so we did a big virtual comp online competition which was really good um so yeah you're just continually adapting that sport to grow um and uh yeah it's got it's got bigger and bigger and there's more and more opportunities now and like some of the guys who are in it, the early adopters of it, you know, they're adding a living out of the industry now, which is really cool because it has to become self-sustaining, really. What are the um, scooter brands that you're pushing? Uh, so we own two, District and Dominator. They're our own. Um, and then we distribute Aztec, Grit and Crisp. So um, five. Is that five? That's six, isn't it? Can't even count. Never great at maths. Uh, but also we've done the, um, we've got a licensed agreement with Nitro Circus to do Ryan Williams' signature products. Um, so seven in total. Um, and that's probably been the the biggest one recently. He's a huge star. Um, big following on Instagram. Four times X Gaze BMX champion. I mean, he's a good really good athlete um and obviously part of the nitro circus which is awesome as well so uh, it's pretty good being involved with those guys um but as a business um we kind of knew that i'd been in this sort of scooter world before and it can be a bit boom and bust so not straight away but within a couple of years of us starting um i started to utilize our customer base and our customer base were predominantly bike um, and so we looked at distributing other products to that customer base. Um, and that was when we started doing Rocky Mountain. Um, so the, with a UK distributor for Rocky Mountain bicycles as well, uh, which we've done now for a few years. Um, and I'd known those guys from the Silverfish days because you know, they were distributing it when I worked there. Um, and um, they stopped distributing it and Rocky had nowhere to go. And they came, Randy came to me, the guy that um, is the international sales uh, manager there. And he's like, do you want to do Rocky? And I was like, no, 
I don't want to do anything bike. It's tough business. And anyway, he worked on me for about six or seven months. And then eventually we were caved and I was like, all right, we'll do it. And, and it's been good, actually. It's been really good. And it's a great brand, great product. So you, they distribute what normal, regular mountain bikes, but also electric mountain yeah, bikes as well. Yeah, both now. Yeah, they, and they went a bit of a different way with the electric stuff. Um, they were quite, they were not late to the market because they were early adopters of building their own technology. Um, and so whereas a lot of brands were kind of going down the Bosch or Yamaha or Shimano type electric motor, where the motor is the same um, and the bike you build around the motor is different, Rocky were like, no, we're going to build our own motor and then we're going to build the bike around the motor. Um, uh, and so you end up with a completely, you end up with a bike, which is essentially a much better riding bicycle because it doesn't have the parameter of fitting a motor into it. And so um, the geometry in that is a, is almost identical, if not identical to a, a normal bike. Um, whereas with electric bikes, normally the geometry is slightly different to compensate for the motor being in the middle of it. Um, and so that's working quite well for them. Um, they're, you know, electric bikes are not cheap, so it's pretty Gucci, but... Electric everything these days is quite yeah. popular. Cars, scooters, you know, we're talking about their mountain bikes. It's it's all, you know, it's quite a big thing. Even like you watch some of the pros in Hawaii, they're, they're rocking around on just 100% almost like electric motorbikes aren't they really yeah. um just bouncing around different brakes yeah i th over there you i've surfed at trestles a little bit and there's a lot of guys going down the break the because it's a like a i don't know how far it is but it's quite a long walk from the car park it's about a 25 minute walk i think yeah all the way down to the bottom which i've done a few times in bare feet which is not fun um but these guys they're riding electric bikes you know so they got the like kind of fat small fat tires with a surfboard rack and you'll they'll whiz by and you're like that's probably quite a good idea and it also in the beaches at france you know where you know it's peak after peak after peak mm. but most people kind of like group up around where the car park is um, and then you've got these guys on these bikes that are going down across the sand dunes or right down along the beach to get a peak on their own type thing and and so it's it's extended your ability you know it's linked back to surfing you know it's kind of like it's these are useful products um, that's kind of what my idea has been middling around in my head for when i move up to uh, north devon in january <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> just to get away from the hordes uh, yeah i you yeah that's i think it would work it's very hilly up there though and the coastal path is pretty brutal so you'd need something a bit good for that but uh, otherwise it's a long hike in it um or surfing in the dark so you distribute for Dekine as well, aren't you? Yeah. How De did that come about? Well, Dekine's an interesting one for us. Um, uh, so we, um, through work that we had done for the Nitro Circus guys, um, we, um, sorry, let me get this right. The guy that worked at Nitro Circus was the guy that we did the deal with. He left and went to a brand called Marquee Brands, which is a big company. Um, and that company bought Dekine. And because we'd done a pretty good job and delivered a good product for him uh, with Nitro Circus, he introduced us to the guy in charge of Dekine and said, you should chat to these guys because, you know, they're reliable, which is seemingly quite difficult to be nowadays. 
So we ticked a load of boxes, got on really well with him, liked us, liked him, all that kind of stuff was good. Um, and um, so they approached me and said, you know, we're going to buy Dekine. Uh, they hadn't yet done it at this stage. Um, and, you know, what do you think about doing some of the categories or maybe making a, sc a scooter with Dekine on it? And I was like, mm, I don't think that's a very good idea. Um, and they said, well, look, you know, what do you reckon type thing? And I was like, yes, yeah, cool. I mean, it's good. What do you want me to do type thing? And they said, why don't you just write down a list of things that you think would be suitable for the Dekine brand? Um, and we'll have a chat. And that was really what started it. Um, and I went with a list of stuff, you know, like electric bikes for surfing, exactly that. Um, that kind of beach bike, if you like. Um, helmet for cycling, because they don't do a helmet. Eyewear um, and a few other bits and pieces, extension of their protection range. Um, a few bits, things that they're not already doing that they should be doing that are natural fits. And the most obvious one for me was wetsuit. And I said to them, um, in that list of things was wetsuit. And they said, okay, well, which, if you wanted to do one, if you had to pick one, which one would you want to do? And I was like, to be honest, with the guys I know, I'd, I'd do wetsuit. Because I think we can, I think we can build a really good wetsuit for you guys. Um, and, and that was how it came about. And they were like, yep, let's do it. Um, and so... They, you know, they, they, then they then bought Dekine, nothing to do with me. They bought Dekine because it was a good deal um, and it's a good brand and they, their plans to grow it uh, is really interesting. Um, and um, I think it's, it's certainly got legs and we just focused on doing a wetsuit for them. Um, and so we are kind of like one of their new additional categories. They've gone into footwear um, as well. Um, and, and I think it's going to be really, it's going to be really good. We've been, what are we, this is our third year now and we haven't yet even, well, we've just got a product to market, um, because of COVID, unfortunately, that was a bit of a massive spanner in the works. Um, cause we'd planned to launch back in the spring last year. Um, but we couldn't, we couldn't do any pre-sales because the world had shut down in March. It was right bang in the middle of our pre-sell. Um, and so we, we just, we had no option, but to kind of ax the plan or delay it, um, which we did basically. And so now it's this spring when it will hit the market. So 2021, April, 2021 is when we'll have product in the market. Um, but we've seeded it a little bit with a few bits and pieces. Um, we've been developing it for a couple of years um testing it with people getting their feedback um you know we are our biggest critics of it forget what the brand is you know we want to make the best suit that we can with the tools that are available um and um so i'm every single time i use one i'm like oh i think i felt a bit of water there how can we stop that doing you know like really really critical of them and then I talk to guys that use them and they're like, freaking hell, the suits are amazing. They're super warm. They're really flexible. They dry quickly. You know, all the things that they should do. Um, and, and so it's, you know, I know that we've got something that's pretty good. I also know that there's things that we can do to it to make it better. And we will be, but they're not quick changes. Um, there's a life cycle that you kind of got to go through, a production cycle. Um, but yeah, it's good. And, and actually, probably in hindsight, not launching last autumn, has enabled us to come to the market with a better product than we had then 
um and that and so that's been pretty good actually or will be hopefully and the pre-sales have been strong and it's global so it's it's bloody scary actually thinking about it on like that that kind of scale being a distributor but also helping with the manufacturing of something that what we were talking about before we started the podcast you know a surfing community but a global one yes putting the product out there that is not necessarily swamped with different brands and wetsuits and stuff but people have their own um their own takes on them whether yeah. it's you know the patagonia suits that have got the lining inside or mm. you know you've got other distributors that have got you know half lining half different types of neoprene and yeah it it's it's actually um i think probably i just took it for granted be like most people do it's just a wetsuit right uh it's got a job to do so you don't even think about it and you abuse the shit out of it i mean it's one of the hardest used products probably that we we are as surfers you know way more than the board probably um uh, other than maybe wax which you you know whatever but the so i was when we started looking at the developing of it um i engaged with phil up in north devon um who's been building wetsuits for years and designing wetsuits for years um we were kind of like right how can we come to the market with something that's different in a way i mean it will be different in a way because it's branded differently um and half of the market when we did our research half of the market kind of like already thought that the kind did a wetsuit you know and the other half were like you should do a wetsuit you know it's the most obvious thing you should do it's a surf brand after all um so we were pretty confident that when we built one it would sell you know even if it wasn't very good type thing um because it's got a really strong brand and when people would say to me oh you don't want to come super crowded uh there's loads of wetsuits the world doesn't need another wetsuit whatever i get that um um but there's also like there are guys who will only ever buy an o'neill wetsuit because they've had it for years they're super happy with it and it's a great product they're all great products there are no nowadays there are no bad wetsuits really um there are just different wetsuits there's too much market research out there isn't there yeah it's it's it just comes down to your personal preference or who you know that's got one or where you can get a deal like that's predominantly and it's a really frustrating thing for us because we came to the market um and our like the decline dna if you like is to build trusted durable product you know there are guys that have got a backpack that they've had for 20 years right and that's that's decline's dna that's like when you build anything for decline that's where you have to start and so when we were looking at a wetsuit you know most of the wetsuits nowadays they're great products but they don't last that long um and they're not particularly clean products environmentally um and so we kind of like looked at it from the ground up and because we haven't been building wetsuits for 30 years we can look at it with fresh eyes and come right if we were to start building a wetsuit today if billabong was starting to build a wetsuit today with no history what would you do you know um and so we looked at it we we t- we came at it from that approach um and so and there's a kind of element between there's a trade off between um flexibility durability sustainability there's lots of abilities no ability you know 
Um, that's all a big trade-off. That's all a big compromise. Um, and you can build the most, the best performing, super comfy, super flexy wetsuit. And it might last three months. Uh, or you can last one that build one that will last forever, but it'll be awful to use. So it it's really challenging to try and build something that will tick all of those boxes enough uh, to get consumer adoption. Um, because you can, like with Patagonia, they build a great wetsuit. They use a natural um, source product with Ulex. Their linings are pretty good. But Ulex as a foam isn't quite as good as limestone-based foam. It's way cleaner. Um, arguably better or worse, not sure for the environment, but it's a it's a better product, um, as in from a sustainability perspective. But if you talk to anyone that uses a Patagonia wetsuit, it may not be the best one to use. It may not be the most comfy. It's possibly a little bit stiffer. And that's the trade-off, right? Do great for the environment. It will still work perfectly like a wetsuit. It's still super warm and you can still move in it. It's not like you're being tied up or anything. But it may not be as flexible as rip curls, for instance. Um, and so when we're looking at building wetsuits, we're taking all of this from what other people are doing and what we're doing. And we're trying to kind of push it all into this big moldable ball to get the best outcome. And it is a trade-off. Um and that's why there are different levels of wetsuit. So we we have three levels, without getting too much into a production marketing thing. We have three levels and each one of those three levels do a different thing. And depending on what you want out of the suit, there's one that will kind of fit your bill. Um, and if you want one which is more durable to last a lot longer or that's repairable, we've got a wetsuit for you. If you want one that's gonna perform slightly better, but maybe not as environmentally friendly, We've got that one for you. Or if you want just a properly good, robust, do everything kind of suit, but not spend as much money on it, then we've got that too. And most brands have got all of those things. And like I say, there aren't really any bad wetsuits out there. Um, and uh, and and it's good, you know, we we will we'll probably sell a few. Which moves in nicely to sustainability, which is one of the things you yeah. want to talk about. Yeah, sustainability is... Um, I think as surfers and mountain bikers, you know, and being people that live outdoors a lot, sustainability is a really difficult thing to get right. Um, and you can have the most sustainable product on the planet and no one will buy it. And that's a bit challenging for us as manufacturers for all brands is to build eco-conscious sustainable products um and consumers adopt it because without mass adoption like i say it doesn't matter what you do you know are electric cars cleaner than petrol cars yes there's still way more petrol cars sold you know so and it's changing and it's a slow process um and you know we strive to build the most um kind of product that will leave leave the smallest trace and do the least harm um and um but it is a bit of a it's a bit of a challenge um, and it needs people to adopt it um, i think one of the hardest things when you're talking about sustainability and the, especially when you reflect on the environment as well is that it's really difficult to get people out of their normal way of life and their normal way of thinking everybody's pro something whether it's but let's be honest, social media drives 
people's thinking these days. It can do, yeah, for sure. But, and when I mean that with, you know, what we're talking about here, the environment, sustainability, using products, creating products that aren't going to hurt the environment when either they're broken, they've been used or, or whatever, is that you want, you need to change people's thought process saying that this is better for the environment but not take the easy option saying, look, yeah. we're promoting this, right? This is the best product. Let's say it's a shirt because I'm looking at your shirt yeah. now. Let's, let's use your shirt, for example. Yeah. This shirt is eco-friendly. Once you've finished with it, it's ripped, whatever, it's biodegradable, it's gone. But then the price cap on that, because it is a sustainable item, is a lot higher than, let's say, you go onto eBay and you buy a shirt for 10 quid that looks exactly the same, but your price cap is 30, 40 quid over what you want to yeah. buy. So what you've got to try and change is that you're buying something for life. Now, my missus would like me saying this because I've only got three or four T-shirts <laughs> and jumpers and jeans and stuff, and I wear the same shit all the time. I know, I do as well. Totally but the same. That's kind of what we're talking it about. It is, yeah. But, pe but, but the social media... And the industry, the fashion industry as as a whole, is very driven, and you almost kind of playing on people's um, wealth a little bit, aren't you? Do, 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 yeah, do, I do, do. Do you see that or no? I, no, I, I, we see it all the time because um, half you, you have to look at the reason why somebody buys something in the first instance, and and my feeling is basically buy less shit with money that you don't have to impress people that you don't like exactly right so if we all did that actually we'd probably have a fairly clean environment and we could go and buy occasionally the things that we do want just to for our own sake type thing um and you know clearly the most sustainable products are the ones that last forever never get thrown away but it's the process from sourcing raw materials to then molding and building and and um, producing those raw materials into a finished product that's as also as sustainable and as environmentally friendly as possible shipping that product to somewhere where people can access it it's, you know in as green way as you can and then making that product last for as long as possible that's like a big long process that's even before you've got to what the price of it is you know using ethically sourced labor you know that's more expensive um sourcing organic produced cotton that's more expensive um recycling bottles that's expensive to do that and actually takes a lot of energy to do that it might be better off just to build the yarn from scratch in the first place um so there's all these sort of like loads of different factors um but then ultimately you get to the point where someone has to buy it so they need to find it that's normally from our some article on social media, probably that they've seen or through like you're wearing a nice fluffy jumper. I'm like, nice jumper ads. Where do I get one of those type things? So you're being influenced by somebody. But then frustratingly, and we all do it, me included. Oh, can you do a steal? Can you do a deal on one of those things? And you're like, no, I fucking can't do your deal. Because like, I can't get to, to where it is here yeah. and then not make any money on it in order to reinvest in making it cleaner in the future. Um, and we all, I do exactly the same. Like I would probably never buy one of our mountain bikes at full retail. And it's crazy for me to say that. 
but that's that's it but we need to you know everybody needs to buy there's a reason why things are the price they are um and that's because you know it's sustaining people's livelihoods there's loads of people in the supply chain that's got to eat you know it's like these things are exp- i mean i'm amazed we pay what we pay for some stuff when i think about one wetsuit or one bicycle or one scooter even which is hardly any moving parts the process from the drawing that you're paying somebody to do or needs to make a living on because he's a designer, a product designer from that point to getting it in a box on a shop floor. That's quite a long process. What we actually end up paying for that product is way too cheap when you consider everything that it's gone through. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a little bit frustrating. So how do we make super sustainable, equally sourced, ethically sourced, all the other bits and pieces, fair trade, all the other junk, and do it at a price that people are considered for being the right price to pay for it? And what is that right price? And are you, is everyone happy to do it? You know, that kind of old adage, what is it? Um, buy cheap, buy twice or something, that saying? Well, that's, that's sustainability, yeah. Buy once. That's it. Done. Got the thing forever. Um, And that's why, you know, when people like Patagonia and stuff and other brands, not just them, they'll do this kind of like free repair service because like throwing it away. That's really harmful because even if it biodegrades and we're working on biodegradable product right now for the future, it's still got to go into the correct landfill. It's still got to be. But it's not like a. Oh, it's disappeared. It's still a long process for it to disappear into, you know, back into the earth. Although that is compostable stuff. It's amazing what you can compost actually with the right additives. Um, or not burn it. Or not burn it. Yeah. Like definitely don't burn it. That's not necessarily a good idea. Landfill is the correct landfill is probably still the best way. You can create gas, which can be used for fuel. Yeah, there's loads of byproducts that you can use from it. And essentially it's turning back to, um, you know, our ultimate game gain or plan is to be able to take something out of the environment that's been used. So let's say a plastic bottle, build it into a product that we can use and then we throw it away at biodegrade. That's our, that's where we're striving to, and we're close. We, we've, we've done it in a lab. We, we can, we can do it. Um, but we then need to make it so that someone will have be able to pay for it. Um, and, and it not, it not be, um, to the detriment of performance. It needs to perform exactly the same as its non ethically sourced counterpart. Um, and it needs to cost about the same. Uh, and those are the challenges. That's good to see that, you know, you're making the product for the kind that, you know, is is all, all your other brands as well. You know, your scooter brands as well. That is gonna is is gonna be more focused towards that as well. Yeah, yeah, we we try not to throw anything. If you if you get like a, in the trade, if you get a box from us, it'll be a box that we've had delivered to us that we've reused. You know, just simple things like that. That that we hardly throw away any cardboard now. We reuse it. Um, and you could say, oh, it just moves it down the line. Arguably, yeah, but. It's also taken a new box out of the environment, you know. Um, so use it more, use it for longer, throw it away less, repair it if you can. Um, and yeah, spend the appropriate amount of money to in the first place to get you that. Um, and I think 
your what you were saying earlier you, you need we need to change our habits from a health perspective and an environmental perspective as well you know Which we're not healthy the, people it's one of the most difficult things to do is change people's yeah. ways um again that's something for an individual i think not necessarily for i don't know definitely not companies or 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 a globe from a, a conglomerate point of view you can't really tell somebody to do something because they won't do it i think information and maybe i'm just going to use the word influencers you know pe- people in a position of responsibility that people listen to especially these days is probably the only way really yeah. that's going to get across to people i think the this christmas covid thing is a pretty interesting point that in my totally in agreement with you you can be influenced to change or you can be legislated to change those are the only two ways really that we're going to make any fundamentally big difference um because it's unlikely that you'll wake up one day and be this kind of eco warrior unless you've been exposed to it in the first place half the guys probably don't even know that what they're buying is 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 harmful or that there is an alternative so you can't judge them for that they just don't know any different and like with this christmas thing you know the government have set out a set of guidelines not rules i don't know why people call them christmas rules but they're christmas guidelines we don't have to abide by them but if you get you know like a load of people kind of going oh well, these are the rules and are you going to break them well they're number one they're guidelines but if you get enough influencers saying well actually this is what we're going to do and we're not going to you know we're going to actually have a christmas on our own which is totally fine it's not a big deal you know it can it can actually have a very positive effect um but it's uh but it can only be those two things there's without kind of education or awareness at some level you may not know that what you're doing is good or bad um but yeah so for us it's through legislation or it's through influence pretty much cool. and we're influenced by our peers a lot yeah 100% agree um let's talk a little bit about surfing a little bit so yeah. what are you riding at the moment oh I unfortunately, then this is not an OG thing, but I've been riding a mid-length a lot. I know, God, it's such a. I'm just going to beat myself for a second while I say that. <laughs> I was going to say riding a mid-length. I think it's Pointer's fault. That's the trouble. What with his uh, M2? Yeah, with his M2, his bastard M2. A friend of mine's just bought a uh, 72 MIDI. Yeah, on Channel Island I mean, I am. It's the shortest mid-length I can buy. If there's any justification, it's a 610. Um, uh, it's called a, a magnet. It's in a, one of our, it's a brand that we do called Alone. Um, and it's the Alone magnet. And um, yeah, it's actually like yesterday, it was probably the right board. Um, but when I'm not riding that, um, I flip between a Maguro, Sharp Eye Maguro, which is a 20, um, which is super good fun. Um, or a kind of 6.0. I've just got a new Pisalian XL Pisalian 2XL, which is the fat boy, nearly 50-year-old shortboard version. It's basically the same board with a bit of extra volume. Um, so I've used that a couple of times, and that's actually quite good. I think that could be quite a good bit of a go-to board for almost all conditions, actually. That's 
really nice shape. I'm loving the way talking to people. Everyone's going a little bit more volume. It's amazing. Yeah, it. We get super hung up on it though. I mean, like we'll we have customers come through the um, through the door and they're like, oh, I need a board around thirty four point two liters. Yeah, and you're like, well, we've got one here at thirty four. No, no, <laughs> and I'm like. It won't make that much difference. I mean, you know, 25 litres to 35 litres, that makes a big difference. Um, but you need to think about the shape of the board as well. What kind of conditions that you're going to be using it in, how fit you are, how many times you go surfing. There's so many millions of variables um, that you can't just be hung up on the litre. As a guide, for sure. I know for me, anywhere between 32 and 37 I can. I'm pretty comfortable on a board. Are you me? Yeah, possibly. You might be me. I think it might be you. <laughs> well, I've got loads of board. Van full of boards are all around that size, um, and I tend to have the best surfs on boards around that volume. But it can be five eight to six ten, you know, depending. Um, Again, are you me? Yeah, that's what's in my <laughs> <Sorry>. garage. <laughs> great minds, yeah. um, great jumpers. Um, I, yeah, I think that's probably where I'm at with it, but it's taken a while. And as I say, I would, I took a big break from surfing. Um, and I can tell you now that there's, you think buying a wetsuit is confusing. Holy shit. Buying a surfboard. How do you choose? There's so much choice. Um, and they all do everything really well. All these boards, all the reviews. Yeah. They pedal really well. They catch waves really simply. They turn on a dime. Not all boards can do that, surely. Well, it's you know. also the standard of the person on it. So, like, if you're that's Mr. the variable. It, that that's not just the it is the variable. The variable, yeah. You know, and again, I've talked about this quite a few times, but you've got people that talk a really, really good way, yeah. But can they actually do what they're talking about in their head? They might be, but then. Yeah. But then also, you've also got to think about that. Like you say, there are so many different types of boards out there. Is what do they want to achieve out of their surfing? Now, that's that's the key point. Do they think they're going to be in a year or are they at the level of, you know, a pro where they're cracking a massive bottom turn, mm. smashing the lip, maybe getting the fins out, yeah. doing some really hardcore rail surfing? Or they they just, know what they want though. Yeah, or are they just a little bit like me, where you like to think that you could do something like that, but realistically, yeah. you're more like doing the bottom turn, doing the cruisy top turn, <laughs> and just doing a little bit of bottom to top. In my head, I am whether yeah. I am or not is a different matter. I know. For me, I think it comes down to how it feels, um, and the feeling comes from the pressure or the force being pushed back through the board. And sometimes you can do like a really nice kind of cutback and you go, wow, that felt like there was loads of force, little bit of spray, you know, I'm John John type thing. You're, you're clearly not. but And the photo hasn't been taken to say that you are. And there is no proof of it, <laughs> but it felt, that's what it felt like. And I think you should buy boards that make you feel that way. And it doesn't matter if it's a Minimal, a Foby or a toothpick, buy boards that that enable you to ride as many ways as you can when you're out and that feel the best and and it doesn't matter no one's watching that well there's a few people watching 
No, there's no one really watching. That's why wave pools are a bit weird, aren't they? How much, how, ang- how much anxiety do you get well, paddling it, into a wave pool? It, it depends I'm on... Like, I'm not sure I like them. It depends what your personality is like, though, isn't it? it? Whether you get hung up on people watching you. But at the end of the day, if you go out, good day at Croy, yeah. there's a million people out there. And it's the same amount of people there watching you do stuff as you would be in a standalone pool. It's not as arena, though, is it? It's not like... It's only like that if you make it like that in your head. Totally. I know. I mean, I get in and paddle out having a word with myself. I'm more frustrated with myself for not being able to do... um, The turn that you were trying to... Certain things on it rather than... I just look like a kook in front of all them people stood in there. Couldn't give a shit about them, if I'm perfectly honest. I'm more concerned about... I just spunk something that yeah, uh, I'm trying to get like what? Damn it! I'm not John John. Yeah, I try to get twenty waves in the session, not That's just it. the forty that come through in the set or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's um, uh, I think it's a bit odd, but from a, I mean, we have guys like I say come through the shop, and I think you just need to be honest about it. Um, and you know, I was actually emailing with somebody from the Caribbean randomly last night who wants to buy a board and they're looking at a gremlin, Paisel gremlin. And they've been surfing a year and they live in the Caribbean. So they, they're going to get some good surf, you know, over there. And they're like trying to come off a mini mal and they're looking for the next board. That's an, in, that's an impossible task it, for us. I don't know who they are, how they surf, what, you know, but surfing a year, what size would you go for? She's looking at, is a lady, um, looking at a six eight gremlin, like that's a massive surfboard. You're probably better off on your mini mal, yeah. Because big... if it's not the right size, it also won't perform very well. Um, because they need to fit you. Shortboards need to fit you. Um, as as importantly as what the volume is, possibly. I'm not a. I I can I know what it feels like. Um, and I know that we did loads of video analysis when we were learning to snowboard and teaching snowboarding. And that really helps if you can get someone to film you because the movement that you think you're making, you could be miles off. You know, yeah. it's like when we would do it, like we would go, we would traverse across the slope and we would go right from one to 10, you go up and down. And then when you finished it, you tell me where you were between one and 10 on that movement. And you'd be 50% of what you actually were doing. You'd be like, oh, yeah, I was definitely, you know, right down to sort of two. And they'd be like, you didn't get down as far as seven, really. And you're like, oh, shit. And then all of a sudden you you're connecting the feeling with the visual, you know, yeah. and it's a way faster way of accelerating how to improve, actually. Otherwise, you just don't you don't really know. You can't serve in front of a mirror. It's a whole different podcast technique right there. Mate, we've been going for an hour and 40, so I'm going to do a little bit of a quick fire round with you. It's more surf orientated more than um, Fine. biking. That's Is that the right word? Biking? Biking would be right. Yeah, biking. <laughs> as long as it's not dogging, it's all right. Not dogging. Although, yeah. no, not a particularly good expert yeah, we'll on leave that. It there. <laughs> uh, okay. So if you could ride one surfboard fin set up for the rest of your life, would it be single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless? Thruster. Favourite surfer and why? Oh, no, John John, I think. He just, he looks, he is amazing. He looks strong this year he's, as well. He's, he's good, yeah. Uh, last surf film you watched? Tokyo Rising. It's good, that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, really good. Yeah, I watched it a couple yeah, of days ago. Yeah, really good. 
Uh, first surf film you've ever watched, or you ever watched? Ruddy hell. If you say the same one that I did, I'm going to go, <laughs> should we just swap lives for a little bit? Probably not Endless Summer then. No. Um, no, I don't I don't know what the first one was. I, I wouldn't no. be able to. I'm not actually very good at remembering the names of movies, yeah, actually. I found it the other day on YouTube, you? the first one. I, the first surf, uh, it was a VHS called What Now, had Rob Machado. It was basically when uh, Reservoir Dogs yeah. came out. And they were doing like some really, I think it might have been like a pre-make of like a Taylor Steel thing. So yeah. it had like a theme in it. Right. It was pretty cheesy. <laughs> I'd love it. But it but it was funny. Um, it had loads of Bruce Lee like snaps and stuff. So every time everyone hit the lift, every time someone went up to hit the lift, whack. <laughs> it's really cool. Uh, okay. Dream first surfing trip. So dream surf trip. Not the first one I went, but just the dream one. Just a dream one. Um, what just make it? Yeah, actually, I think my best surf trips are the ones that are local with the, and it's the guys that make it, not necessarily. You can go on surf trips, and I've been on loads, where the surf will be super shit, but the, the trip will be amazing. Um, so, and that doesn't matter, that could be anywhere. But Mentawi's probably, I'm going, we were supposed to go this year, not been, so I've not been yet. So that may be, could be a dream, could be a nightmare, I don't know. That's a tick list right there, isn't it? <laughs> see, see how we get on. Dan Maker, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that's it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider and also leave a comment. Also, you can follow The Grumpy Surfer on Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.